The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Arun Sudharman with the Echo Chamber podcast. I'm here in Hong Kong, uh, and I'm very happy to be joined by Emma Dale from Prospect Resourcing. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Emma, before we start, I wonder if you could just perhaps tell us a little bit about your background and about your company. Sure. Um, So I'm the co-founder and managing director of Asia for Prospect, and we are a global resource consultancy specializing in placing talent within PR and corporate communications. We have offices in London. Um, I set it up with my colleague Colette Brown in London 17 years ago this month. Um, And then I brought the business to Asia in 2010. Um, And we've now got offices in Hong Kong and Singapore. And we recruit talent primarily from around manager level um, in Hong Kong, Singapore, China, and other locations in Southeast Asia. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, And so we're going to talk today um, about the state of the industry report, Mm -hmm. um, which is a a joint venture between Prospect and Public Affairs Asia. Uh, Public Affairs Asia, uh, if I'm sure um, our listeners are already quite well aware, um, is the sort of primary uh, platform for public affairs professionals um, in this region. Uh, And I think it's been running for around a decade. Yes. um, More or less, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And so this is the seventh edition of the State of the Industry Report. Yes. Uh, And I just, I've read through most of it, I think, more or less. And I was was really impressed by the, the, both the breadth and the depth uh, in terms of the kind of information there's survey findings, but there's also a lot of really interesting qualitative research in terms of what the industry looks like in Asia on the agency and client side, what the challenges are, uh, what the trends are, and where it's going. Um, so I would I would advise everyone to read it. It's free. It is. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's there's really no excuse. But let's talk about some of the things that have come out of the the this year's report. Sure. Um, and let's start with salary and benefits because that is section one. So it's a good place to start. Um, so you, you start by saying the industry remains buoyant. Um, average regional salaries of 143,000 US dollars, bonus levels running at 22%. Do, when you say it, it's buoyant, is that from a global perspective or is that more kind of compared to previous years? I think we're looking at this from an APAC perspective. Um, salaries are still going up. Um, so ever since we have, um, done the report seven years ago, um, uh, salaries are still increasing. Um, and, and so are bonuses. So that's what we mean by buoyant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people were surprised, um, that salaries weren't static. Our report does show that salaries in terms of increases really do depend on the level of individual, um, Certainly, our report shows at the most senior level, that's where salary increases are far less. And people will move, sal- will move jobs, potentially for the same salary. 
Um, but certainly at the more junior end. And I think it's important to note that the report tends to cover individuals from manager level upwards because ours and Public Affairs Asia's network are more senior-orientated individuals. Um, we really see that there is more of an increase in salaries at manager level and junior level, um, but at the top end, people aren't moving for such big hikes anymore. Right, okay. And, and that, I, I presume that reflects your, your own experience when you're placing people. Yes. You're not really seeing people who are kind of agitating for a move based on the prospect of a, of a bigger payday elsewhere. Well, it depends. Um, senior level people will move for different reasons to juniors. Um, even if I think about the type of candidates that we interview and we place, on the agency side, that would be around account manager level upward. On the in-house side, that would be a comms manager upwards. Certainly account managers and agency want to move to get more money. Absolutely. Um, they are driven still, I think, by money, title, um, and yes, opportunities. But I feel that salary and title is really important to them. Then if you look at the other end of the spectrum and look at senior people that are directors of agencies or heads of communications, they are moving for different reasons. Um, they are moving because maybe they can't get any further. They've reached that glass ceiling. Um, sometimes they're moving because they'd be made redundant. Um, sometimes they're moving simply because they need a change and they've been in that role for a long time. So people in a senior position tend to stay in those senior roles for much longer, where the juniors are still moving around relatively quickly. Right. Okay. And is that a, do you see that as a challenge for the industry that, that, that level of churn amongst the kind of junior to mid-level ranks? Yes, it is a challenge. Um, clients don't want to see job hoppers. Um, and I think now we're in a, in a world where people will move jobs quite frequently and maybe they'll start in one career and they'll change careers. Maybe people will have two careers at the same time. Um, so we are going to keep on seeing this happen. Um, but clients generally get nervous about it. Um, so it is a challenge to recruit talent and to place great talent. And they may have fabulous reasons as to why they've left their jobs. But clients are really nervous, understandably so. Because if, if that candidate joins that firm, they may move in 18 months again. Um, so yeah, it's a real challenge, but it's very difficult to, um, persuade individuals to stay put. Mm. Um, they want new challenges. They want to try new things before they settle, if you like, um, later on in their career. And, and final question on this, this issue, um, where you've seen agencies or, or, or I mean, it's, it's, I guess we're talking more about agencies when we talk about that level of churn or do you see it on in-house as well? No, you're right, agencies Agency. primarily. Where you see agencies that have maybe addressed this challenge well, what have they done? What are the kind of... How have they kept their people? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think agencies are doing brilliantly now at keeping their staff, mm. far more than ever before. Right. Um, and again, I think our report shows that, that um, retention is much better. Mm. Um, now, why is that happening? I, I think agencies are finally realizing that they need to change their culture, their environment. They need to offer flexible working practices. Mm -hmm. right. They need to be better at hours. And they are. Mm 
overall, I think most of the agencies are far more enjoyable places to work than they ever have been. Mm. Um, however, it is still difficult to convince somebody to stay longer than two years um, at sort of manager, senior account manager level. Um, the more senior people, they do stay. They um, they, turn, they they move into leadership positions and they get happy and they do stay. But yeah, I think agencies are, are much better at looking after their staff. Um, we've seen new policies come into play. It's all around work-life balance. It's all around actually allowing people to work more flexibly and when suits them rather than chaining them to a desk from nine till nine. Um, so I think the working hours are much better. Um, what else have people done? I think giving them career opportunities, um, agencies that can offer individuals um, opportunities to go and work in different locations is brilliant um, and really successful in retaining talent and keeping them in that organization in the region or globally. Um, people want to go and try out new things and relocate to other offices and understand how things work in different locations. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw a lot of agencies made made much of that that this 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 opportunity to go to different offices Definitely. and I, I have to say I was a little skeptical about it but it sounds like it actually is a it, it's a big deal for people. I think it works yeah. really well um, in part of our uh, report we asked or our salary survey part of the report we asked individuals about their satisfaction levels and internal mobility yeah. was really important to people that's true yeah yeah good point so let's talk about the gender pay gap um, according to your research 20,000 US dollars the average male salary is 155k average female sal- salary is 135k mm-hmm. um, now of course no one wants to see a gender pay gap um, but is this moving in the right direction at least Yes, I think it is moving in the right direction. It's better than our survey suggested last year. However, we do have to bear in mind that different people enter our survey every year. Mm. We don't have the same data every year. Mm. Um, But I, I can tell that by my role as a recruiter and working with HR functions that people are trying to address it. When we actually launched the report in Singapore and Hong Kong, and we had a roundtable discussion about things like this. Individuals were genuinely very surprised that it was as it is. Um, and I think, I think, I think, therefore, it is getting better, and people are more aware of the gender pay gap and how to make adjustments. The thing is, what can we do to do that? Um, and I feel there's everyone has their own opinion on how they should review salaries. But I think that is the most important thing, that firms need to constantly be reviewing salaries. And is everybody in line? Is everybody in the right bracket for that role? But more importantly, when you're recruiting, when clients are recruiting staff, what is the value they are placing on that position in that organization? And focus on the value of that role and what is the what are you going to pay that person to do that job rather than looking at keeping the salary open, flexible, interviewing a range of people and then deciding to hire someone and paying that person based on what they're currently earning. Well, this is the, where it goes wrong. Yeah, you mentioned that in the report. So that's not actually allowed now, right, in the, in the US, I think. In the US, no one has to declare their salary. Right, so it's about the value. It's totally about the value of the job. And if you have decided to hire a communications manager mm-hmm. and you decide that that salary is going to be 
50 to 65,000, let's say, Hong Kong dollars per month, um, then the individual should be paid that, not a percentage based on what they're currently earning. So we definitely have firms, and these are global firms, that decide that they would always pay 15 to 20% more than what a current person, that individual is currently earning. But that is never going to stop the pay gap. Because if a man is earning more anyway than a woman, sure. and he's going to get 15 to 20% more, yeah. then the woman is always going to be behind. Mm -hmm. So if we can try and get companies to actually look at what the value they place on that role, rather than just giving somebody a percentage increase, that's how I believe the gap will close. Mm -hmm. It's some interesting um, stats also emerge from, from your gender pay uh, research. So 40% of respondents say that their company does not have a gender pay policy, mm -hmm. um, which I suspect is, um, well, it's definitely too high. And it's surprisingly high, actually. I would have thought, given that many of these are global agencies or, or multinational companies. Correct. 57% um, believe that their company treats men and women equally on pay, yet only 30% think that the industry treats men and women equally on pay, which is something we always see in research. My company does this great, but the industry is terrible. Um, so how, how do you explain that disconnect? I don't know. I think there's still... I think generally, putting PR and communications aside, there's a pay gap. Mm. So I think everyone is basing the industry on what's going on in every single industry. Mm. So I think we have a pay gap in so many different industries people automatically think the PR comms industry is really bad. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's I think they're just looking at it as a on a global all industry level rather than specifically PR and comms. Mm. I, I'm all, I also wonder how well our HR professionals or leaders of businesses communicating mm. pay and diversity policies to their staff. Right. Um, you know, I think we could all do much better in that. Mm -hmm. um, and some firms are, and that's probably why that figure is high, that people believe their company is good at um, recognising male and female salaries as equal, um, and they have various policies in place. Um, but uh, generally, I think there's so much discussion about the pay gap across the industry um, and industries, everyone feels that outside their world, it's it's far worse. And yet, seventy-seven percent of men believe that their companies believe that there is no pay gap. Of course, <laughs> that is that's quite an unbelievable. Well, I guess it's not. It's, it's not that unbelievable. Um, one of the things you talked about before was uh, the rise in, in flexible working and so yeah. on, and, and these kinds of practices. I mean, how? effective can those kinds of measures be in addressing the pay gap? Because, of course, you know, one factor uh, that I think exacerbates the pay gap is that men often um, benefit from this kind of unbroken service and, and rise up the pay scale that way. Absolutely. And that, that, that is why women uh, find themselves earning less, mm. is that they do take time out to have families. Um, majority of people in Hong Kong, obviously the, the maternity policy isn't exactly long, um, 
but people want to spend time with their children before they go back into work. And having flexible working or part-time options is brilliant to keep these fantastic women back in your business. Um, I think the industry loses loads of great women in PR and corporate communications because they are not flexible. Um, but definitely over the last couple of years, I've seen far more companies than ever before offering part-time op- op- options to their female members of staff that are leaving to have children. Mm. Um, quite what, what is hard in this market now, though, is to get a three- or four-day week role from the beginning. So if you're looking for a new job and you right. only want three or four days and you're not known to that organization and you haven't proved yourself it's really difficult to say hey i'm sorry i can't do five days i want three or four yeah so that flexibility it's really only there for if you're an employee a full-time employee to begin with you earn that flexibility and i think that and that's great that's great um to keep really good talent in your business by saying no problem you want to have families fantastic come back on a three or four day week that's great but it's it's the hard bit is when you've got fantastic individuals which I have you know that I'm working with at the moment that have had children or other reasons that they want a three or four day work working week or they need to be able to leave at a certain time and they can't work till seven eight nine p.m anymore those individuals find it very hard to find that flexibility from day one is that a stigma that, that you think is, is perhaps down to cultural reasons in this part of the world? Sadly, I think there's a lack of trust in Asia. I think um, in the UK, um, certainly when I was recruiting there, I think there was much more of a trust. You trusted your employees to get the job done. It's all you can see. It, it's results driven. You, you know when they're working, you know when they're not. Um, and I think that trust hasn't been there in Asia. I think it's getting much better. Um, and definitely it is because companies are offering their staff flexible working. Now, that can be all sorts of flexibility. That can be literally being able to come in after you've dropped your kids off, kids off for the school run uh, or leaving to pick up your child from school. Yeah. Um, it can be having a day working from home. And not having to commute in. Um, it can be uh, that four-day week we were talking about. Um, and I, honestly, I think it works so well. So well um, if you trust your employee to do it. And the employee proves that they can be trusted. We all work on different ways. I do, you know, I, I run Prospect in the same manner. We have all, all our team um, do not work five days a week nine till six at their desks it just doesn't work that way we're all different and we all work in different time zones as well yeah no i mean the homes report is is completely totally committed to that we all work seven days a week 24 hours a day but (laughs) (laughs) okay not good (laughs) no not good no but we we definitely we're i mean we're built around this whole idea of flexible working but i guess government also has a role to play right because for example in the uk i think it's sort there are i don't know if if it's if it's laws or regulations but you know, you do have to give people the, op- the, the the chance to work flexibly, I think. Um, yes. And there's definitely, I think, more of a, a kind of a environmental push towards it, more than you see in, in this part of the world, perhaps. But it is getting better here. Mm. It really is. Um, you know, I'm currently working on a couple of uh, briefs that are part-time. 
but they are like gold dust. Mm. They really are. And sometimes that's because, in actual fact, the two roles that I'm referring to are new companies that see a need for communications individual. They don't believe it's a full-time job anyway, yet. So um, they want somebody in on a three-day week. But that suits so many people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so new, yeah, so that's that, that's the disruption from newer companies. Maybe mm-hmm. that will help. Yeah, but it's weird, isn't it? Because one of the the kind of other findings I thought from this report that was quite notable, just the level of pressure uh, on particularly on in-house departments. Yeah, and so you would think they would be open to maybe new approaches and new ideas, because you know resourcing seems to be an issue, um, and you would think that that the idea of having a more flexible, you know, range of roles um, might be attractive. So in-house has certainly experienced um, a change over the last few years in terms of their resources. You know, they're having to do far more with far less. Communications functions, in my experience, are definitely shrinking rather than growing. Mm -hmm. There's lots of standalone roles. Um, And then, of course, they're also outsourcing what they can't do internally to agencies. So maybe that's why, if they're outsourcing it to an agency, they don't need somebody part-time internally. Um, However, I think there are loads of freelancers out there. I think there are a lot of freelance consultants that are getting work in-house and agency. Um, that's growing Um, and lots of individuals that become very senior in their organization and for whatever reason leave Mm -hmm. either they can't find that really nice big meaty job anymore so they decide to freelance and be a consultant and they're getting great work out of it yeah sure okay Um, so agencies are in general it appears that they're taking better care of their people I think so Um, particularly at that kind of mid-level where where we see a real crunch. Do you see that curtailing that kind of, um, that sort of traditional view that the agency person, especially I find here in in Asia, is very keen to make it to in-house? Oh, yes. Right. (laughs) We still have that. Yeah. Um, 17 years since we've set up, Claire and I set up Prospect, everybody seems to want to move in-house. When I moved to Asia, it was very very common Mm. I think that was a lot of a cultural reason individuals wanted to be the client Mm. it was very important to them to be the client not the agency because the partnership between agency and client is not as strong as maybe in the US or the UK not as equal equal. sorry that's the right word not as equal Um, so there was a real demand and real push for people moving from agency to in-house now that still is the case Mm. Um, it's very rare that we have individuals coming to Prospect saying, I'm in an agency and I'd love to work for another agency. Mm-hmm. It's, it, why should they move to another agency? You know, if, if agencies are looking after them yeah, better, they they're, they're there. Why go to a different agency? Mm-hmm. In their opinion, they feel it's just a different name on the door. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I would disagree with that. You know, I would try and obviously offer them an opportunity that was totally different to their current opportunity, but it is really hard. And so definitely most individuals want to move from agency to in-house. And that's always been the case. And it continues to be. Um, The perception is that in-house could be easier, could be better hours. 
But it is not the case at all. And our report shows that, that in-house are really struggling with resources. They're doing far more with less. They are working long hours. Um, one of our questions was, do you have to respond to emails and be on line and take phone calls whilst you're on holiday? Well, 70 odd percent did have to do that in-house. And the percentage was lower in agency. So it is not this easy gig that everyone thinks it is. It's different. It's just different. You know, I think obviously the PR and communications market overall, they, everyone works very hard. Um, but um, you do not get an easier life in-house. Far from it. No. And yet, despite all the evidence to the contrary, you find that people still hold on to that view. That Absolutely. They'll, they'll have an easier life in-house. And, and that's a reason for switching from agency to in-house? Not always. I think we see people that start their road, their career, sorry, their career in agency, they then want to change. So they want to try in-house. But moving in-house and the time that you move in-house is so important. Individuals that come to us that have maybe three, four, five years of experience in agency and want in-house sometimes don't get a very meaty in-house position. It, and and they, don't, they don't realize that until they start seeing job descriptions and we consult with them about what, it, what their role will be. Then they realize that they've got far more responsibility in agency if you've worked in agency for longer than that maybe six up to eight years and then you want to move to in-house you get a meaty job Mm -hmm. absolutely you could be leading a team you could be number two in a team um, you could be managing an agency um, you're obviously then dealing with a c-suite yeah great opportunity Um, so Individuals don't always want to move in-house because they think it's going to be easier. Not at all. They want to move in-house because they want that experience. Um, What we don't often see is once they've moved in-house, they never come back. I say they never come back. That's not strictly true. There are people that do come back. Occasionally. But the general rule is that they will go into agency, they move in-house, and that's where they end up. Um, It's it's hard for us to try and persuade somebody in-house to try consultancy. Um, Would you do that? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes the results are mixed, let's say. Oh, it, it, it absolutely agree with you on that. Um, it will only be certain individuals that I interview and think I can absolutely see you in an agency mm. um, due to their personality, due to their breadth of their role, um, due to their proactivity, um, that they're very commercial. Yeah. Because obviously if Got they're moving... They've got to sell. If they're moving from in-house at a senior level to agency, new business is part of their role. And some people are totally afraid of that and don't want it. And some people are, great, I'd love to try that. I've got a great network. I can use that. But generally, the one thing that stops in-house people moving to agency is that new business part of their role. So let's move on to um, some of the agency issues that you've identified um, in the report. So I think... As we're all aware, and as, as you as you report, um, it's a time of great change in the agency industry, and you call it the experimental era. We're seeing integration, we're seeing consolidation, seeing diversification. Um, you know, we're seeing this kind of evolution from from what you'd maybe call traditional public relations to a kind of real range of skills. Um, how is that changing, do you think, the kind of skills profile and the skills that are in demand um, amongst agencies? Well, I think we have a 
differencing of opinions. In some agencies feel they absolutely need people that are fully integrated. So they're hiring people from digital agencies, marketing agencies, creative, social, and they feel that's very, very important. And then I see agencies that are going back to their roots 100%. And they're saying, but we're a PR agency. We're storytellers. We need to come up with the hook, the angle. It's totally irrelevant about the channel. We'll worry about the channel later. Let's focus on getting that great story. Um, So when I was interviewing people for this State of the Industry report, we did have a mixed view. Um, I believe as a recruiter the skills that I'm asked to find are still around creativity, storytelling, mm. writing, mm. writing, 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 content, yeah. content, content, and that's all harder, the I time. Guess, well, the challenge for that in Hong Kong is that majority of people are wanting trilingual ability. So if we're trying to find somebody that's fluent in Mandarin, Cantonese and English, if they're Chinese and therefore, of course, fluent in Chinese, that English is never going to be native level, Mm -hmm. Um, unless obviously they were brought up um, in a Chinese and English environment. But that is the hardest thing. So when we're looking for great writers, historically, when I first set up Prospect in Asia nine years ago, um, we were hiring native English people, and then we were hiring Chinese people to do different jobs. Mm -hmm. Now, we're trying to get the same person, the same Chinese person, to do it all, but it's really hard. Um, we can't expect them to be native, have native level English as well as Chinese, um, and that's even happening in internal communications environments. So, in an internal communications team with a global firm where all the content is produced in English, they still want to hire Chinese to be able to manage both languages. Mm-hmm. So the, so the content of the writing is a constant battle and very hard um, to find great writers that can do both. Um, I, I think the majority of agencies are looking for people that can be um, strategic advisors mm-hmm. because that is never going to be a job that's filled by a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we've now got to think with the changes in technology you know, what jobs in PR and communications are going to exist um, and what skills are required. And still, I think it's the ability to tell a story, um, that creative skill, and being a strategic advisor. So that's what I get asked mainly. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you said that there's almost a divergence between, you know, that on the one hand, people saying, okay, we're looking for these new skills. We want, you know, people who who can who can maybe build beyond what we've been doing into areas like paid and owned. And then you've got the kind of almost like a resurgence of let we need people who are good at the, the, the traditional public relations skills and maybe that includes things like corporate communications and crisis. Do you do you see that difference in terms of the type of agency? Um, or is it not that clear? Yes, I guess I do. Um, the agencies that have gone through this consolidation um, and have decided to bring PR teams together with digital teams, with creative teams, etc., and they mainly do that because they feel that that's what clients are looking for, they are the ones, clearly, that are looking for broader integrated skills. 
the boutique specialist firms are the ones that are, are looking for advisors. Um, and I think it could be a real... Uh, it could be a great year for the specialists. Yeah, and the I, I agree. Yeah, I, I actually think it's... As we've seen the bigger networks in particular kind of flock towards this, um, you know, more exp- expanded range of services and skills, uh, I think it's actually created a, a commercial opportunity for the kind of specialists who have maybe a more narrow focus, but in the short term at least, there are a lot of clients who still really value that. Absolutely. And they really advi- they really value the strategic council. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly specialist firms that I work with are feeling that this is their moment, 100%, and they're really getting great work um, from great clients um, because th- th- that client does not want just to throw all that their work with a generalist agency. They need specialist yeah. advice. Yeah, and, and, and frankly, the numbers bear that out as well. I mean, I think in, in, in our rankings, for example, we find that kind of smaller to mid-sized agencies, I mean, depending on, on the markets and so on, um, you know, are outgrowing bigger players and, and net, particularly generalist networks um so not a huge surprise i guess um so let's talk a little bit to to finish um let's look a little at some of the in-house issues you've identified which again i found really interesting i mean first of all and we've touched on this already that the sort of scale of the challenge facing in-house departments actually did surprise me a little bit um you always accept that communications departments in particular have been under pressure but I was not actually expecting the level of pressure that they seem to be under. I, and I wonder if that's because in this part of the world, they were already pretty small to begin with. Um, and now mm. it seems like they are, um, as you put it, being expected to, to do a lot more um, with less. Did it surprise you? It didn't surprise me because I guess I'm seeing it. I've seen a gradual shift over the years to reducing the size of their in-house function. Um, I think that's also down to the economy. Um, You know, everyone is a lot more aware of cost and budget, and that affects a function like the communications function. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I wasn't hugely surprised, but... it may be just because I'm just used to it now. Yeah. Um, I think what it's surprising is individuals from agency who think they're going to move into an in-house team that has far more resource and then realise that that's not the case at all. Yeah. Um, I think the in-house individuals that we interviewed are still enjoying their role. Don't get me wrong. You know, they still find it challenging. They still love working with different stakeholders. They love working with the C-suite, being true advisors. But yeah, it, it, it's a bigger job now and sadly less resource. The resourcing, though, does get farmed out to agencies. Um, I think over the years that has been, there was a real push towards just projects and a lot of the agencies suddenly were having few, far less retainers and far more project-based work. That seems to have shifted back again. Yeah, we've seen that as well, yeah. actually. Yeah. And I think a lot of the agencies now do have those retainers but in addition they're having projects um but at the in but sometimes the in-house function can't even outsource that to agencies um it's either done or it's dropped because there's no time no money 
Yeah, and I mean, one of the things you you talked about is um, is morale uh, at in-house departments. I mean, how how big of a concern is that? Do you think? I think the morale um, that our report was dis- was talking about was more on morale in the whole of that company. Mm-hmm. So if if resources generally for that company are being uh, pulled back. Um, internal comms has to really raise its game because it needs to communicate to the whole business what's going on and why resources are being cut, etc. So I don't think it's necessarily about the morale and the comms function. I think our satisfaction part of our salary and benefits survey show that in-house companies, in-house teams are still generally quite happy in their role. What they are frustrated about is the lack of career uh, career development and the lack of internal mobility that we've touched on but they are still happy uh, doing the job that they're doing and having the type of level of seniority in their role and exposure to the C-suite and the boardroom um, but that comes with at the moment lack of resources internally but I don't I don't think morale is particularly low I think a couple of the comments that we had were more about the overall company's morale people having a bad day maybe well everyone (laughs) has a bad day (laughs) um and you know I I think I think generally morale in comms in-house functions is okay. I think you provided a convenient shoulder to cry on, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. For some of these beleaguered comms directors. Are they still being viewed as a cost centre, do you think? In, Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. That's why the resources aren't there. Yeah. Um, but, the, but I think getting a seat at the table right. yeah. is getting better. But the, gosh, this is a slow burn. Mm. Um, you know, it, it comms, I think when we had... Um, a couple of years ago, our report was really highlighting how there was just constant crisis going on. That was due to social media and how crises just spread so quickly through social. And if a crisis is spreading um, so quickly, uh, a company has to react to that crisis so quickly. And clearly that involves the C-suite. So I think at that stage, the C-suite were realising how important communications was to solving those crises right, and yeah. or preventing them from happening. Yeah. And they were getting a seat at the table. Um, I think in our report and our interviews, um, it's a real 50-50. Some are part of the boardroom and some are not. Yeah. Um, but I think overall it's getting better and communications is certainly viewed very highly by the C-suite. Um, in most organisations that I interviewed. A final question about internal comms. No longer the graveyard for comms people. (laughs) No, certainly not. Internal communications is so important, particularly when there's lots of change going on. Mm. What frustrates me and saddens me is that internal communications isn't paid as well as other parts. Despite that, because we've really noticed this resurgence in internal comms, and it's become such a huge thing now. Um, whereas, say, five or ten years ago, it really wasn't. You know, it was kind of a, a internal newsletter. Absolutely. Um, and now, of course, it's seen as employees are seen as the most important stakeholder group for a company. Um, and CEOs are, are often talking about how their primary uh, audience, primary group, is, is their employees. Um, is that is that benefiting actual internal communicators though 
in the sense that I often wonder if that shift is being driven by other functions in a company. Um, no, that's interesting. I... I think internal communications is having a interesting time mainly because of where it sits in the function in the in the organization. Mm. So I think it's important but I don't think many firms know where to put it. Mm-hmm. So what we're now seeing is internal communications obviously sometimes sitting in comms yep. but we also see internal communications sitting in HR. Right. Now that yep. could be more of a worry. Yeah. Um, because is that does that then mean that company views internal comms more as a process orientated function? Mm. Um, so we are seeing internal communications people sometimes being a bit worried about where they're going to sit in the in the business. Mm-hmm. I think internal communications will continue to grow um, because every company seems to be going through so much change at the moment Mm. and it's absolutely vital. Um, We have definitely moved away from just the newsletter. Um, I mean, but you'll be surprised there are some organisations that still feel that that's the right approach. Mm. Um, But majority of the global firms that I interviewed or um, recruit for um, have very sophisticated internal comms functions now. Mm. But they're still not being paid um, enough, you think? Isn't that the parity in there? That's what our survey has shown, that internal communications isn't one of the major or the highest areas of pay. Mm-hmm. So our salary and benefits surveys show that corporate, com, corporate affairs sorry, is the most um, well-paid area. Mm-hmm. And I think internal comms is one of the most lowest paid. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it does depend on how individuals, uh, how they rate themselves when they enter our survey. Mm-hmm. However, generally, it's not as well-paid. And it should be. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, Emma, thank you so much for your time. I found this really interesting. I would, I would really advise everyone to read, um, the state of the industry report from prospects and public affairs, Asia, um, and a big shout to Craig Hoy and Mark O'Brien from public affairs, Asia, who also, I think played a big role. They played a very big role (laughs) (laughs) in getting this report out. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Emma. Thank you.